Hi, it's Tuesday before Shavuos, and I want to do uh, an unusual biography today. But uh, first of all, this broadcast, this uh, podcast, I mean, is uh, being sponsored by Gabe Aarons, an old student of mine, who has actually put together, he's a numbers cruncher, put together an interesting report on Jewish enrollments in Maryland and uh, this is the world of statistics. And I'm actually going to get together with him next week and do a podcast together, a different format, to discuss uh, some of these findings, especially in light of the fact that if you live where I live in Maryland, so the local federation, which is called the Associated Jewish Charity, just did commission one of these uh, censuses. You know, we're on in 2020 and the U.S. government's doing a census. And uh, the Jewish communities are census um, obsessed and every 10 years. And they came out with one. And as far as I can see, they sort of really undernumbered the Orthodox, which is just interesting in a community like Baltimore, which have one of the fastest growing Orthodox communities. And these are usually just hunches I have. But next week we'll have a conversation. The podcast will be a conversation with somebody who actually is into numbers and numbers crunching. So you stay tuned to that. But today we're going to stick to the biography format. And it's a very funny uh, uh, story to it because if somebody, make a long story short, I was trying to, I finished one muster thing, you know, and I was looking at another one, it was just boring, it doesn't go. And I like to do about five minutes a day. And... Whatever the safer was, uh, it, it wasn't interesting. And especially in something like Muslim, you better do Mashalib Chavetz. Otherwise, a waste of time. And uh, I didn't know what to do exactly. And because now of the corona thing, for weeks now, we've all been diving in the house by ourselves. And in my case, I'm diving in what we call one of the room with a lot of farm. And your eyes are wandering, and I. Notice the Sefer I bought years ago, 15 years ago, in Israel, called Sefer Chaim. And uh, I only bought it at that time because I had the kudos. And I never really looked at it a little bit. And for some reason I picked it up and started reading. It was very interesting. Unusual. Unusual. And interesting. <clears throat> and it's written by the person I want to speak about today, who, <coughs> excuse me, Rechaim ben Bitzalel of Friedberg. Now, I know that name means zero, but the way he's usually known, which is the misfortune of anybody who's related to a famous person, is this is the brother of Maral. You know, this is always a bummer. If you're the son, the brother, the uncle of somebody like that, you'll always be known in that way. This is so-and-so, so, like there's a book by the Vilna Gon's brother, another book by the Vilna Gon's son. Who are they? I don't know. It's the Vilna Gon's brother, you know. <laughs> That's how he'll always be known. So, this is Achia Maral, who actually was a personality in his own right. And I know about it. I never got into him, but this led me to, for some reason, this happened the last two weeks, three weeks. I got into this, and um, I started thinking, this would be an interesting podcast. And I really got into it. Uh, it was something providential. And I said to myself, last week, I said, you know, maybe I'll just do a talk about him 
even though it's not the right time of the year, not for the yard site. And uh, last week I said I'll do the Bartonora because he's from this time of the year. And uh, the other one, I'll just do it. And the other day I went to look when exactly is the yard site of Chaim Ben Betzal of Freeburg. Guess what? It's Shavuos <laughs> this week. So that's like providential. Consequently, I want to say a few words about this person who is known as is the case with so many scholars in history, not necessarily by what they did, but by what they wrote. And it turns out, one of the things that caught my attention is that this Moser book called Sifre Chaim happens to be something that he composed in the 1540s, I think, uh, 1550s, in a pandemic. In other words, like a corona thing. And he writes that he was stuck in a house in Friedberg, in Germany, and it was a major pandemic running through the streets, and even his Masharis died, and him and his wife locked the door, sounds like us, and like went into total quarantine and uh, social distancing for two months, and being stuck in the house for two months, he went out of his Caleb, and he composed a book, this Musser thing, which has a very interesting and quirky kind of quality to it, but of course, um, it's quirky because, as I said before, consider the circumstance. It's not written in normal times. And so you, like, really vents. And that's kind of just interesting to somebody like me. So who are we talking about? A rabbi in Germany, well, a rabbi who lived in the 1500s. If he's a brother of Maral, you can figure that out yourself. So we're talking about the 16th century Ashkenaz. Um, every career is unique. The Maral and the brothers were all born in Posen. That's all the way in the eastern side of Germany. Actually, Posen was in western Poland. It wasn't even in Germany. It was in the side of Poland that is, uh, that is uh, far away from... Um, what do you call it? Mm. It's far away from um, uh, western Germany, where he ends up. And I hope I haven't confused you. But this is someone who's from eastern Germany. So he's a Polish Jew, western Polish. But this is the 1500s. So all these Polish Jews I'm talking about had not long before moved from Germany. They're the parents or the grandparents. And so he still had a very heavy Ashkenaz kind of culture. And um, he is in the golden age of the Jews of Poland. He's in the 1500s. He lives from 1520 to 1588, so he died almost 70, 68 years old. That's all we're talking about. And that means when he's growing up, when he's uh, 15 or something like that, in the 1530s, he is a Polish boy, and he learned at home with his father or something like that, and they even the father just had for them a tutor. Uh, this is just interesting. Who was a Sephardi? No, it was one of the people who ran away from Spain. And this guy, this Sephardi guy, whoever the tutor was, uh, interested him in uh, Diktuk, which is why later on he writes a Diktuk book, which is very unusual for a 16th century um, Ashkenazic scholar. And uh, he's into poetry and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, he uh, is a little off the beaten track. But on the other hand... uh, and he's very into Chumash Rashi. That's why he writes a commentary on Chumash Rashi. Uh, maybe you know this. Uh, I think it's called Bear Mayim Chaim. Um, and 
he will, uh, well, just hear the story out. So when he's about in his teens, he moves to, he goes to Lublin to the big yeshiva, the Lakewood at that time. It's as Shom Shachtam. I talked about that once. So here you are in the middle of the golden age of the Jews of Poland when learning is really sweeping a, 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 a force. And Roshom Shachno is the son of Rabbi Yaakov is the big guy. This is the best yeshiva. And his chaverim uh, are the future elites. You know, people like uh, the Ramah is a, is a chavrus of his. I repeat, Ramah is a chavrus of his. And he learns maybe by the marshal for a while. And, you know, in the middle of all those fights that were going on in different derech halimuts uh, that was raging in, in Poland at that time that I discussed in the past. And... He put in a nice number of years, I'd say put in 10, 15 years in learning, and therefore became a big scholar. And uh, the result is that he, um, you know, was a Hasho guy, but it seems like there were no Stellas in Poland. I don't know why. And what do you do? And so he travels across Germany in a time when anti Semitism was very rife in Germany. And in 1550 or 1549, so when he's about 29, 30 years old, he becomes a rabbi in Worms, which was a small but Chashev community and uh, uh, in, in, in Poland. And uh, I'm sorry, in, in Western Germany, in the Rhineland. Really, I was talking about Worms in the past. In the 1500s, when there was a lot of anti-Semitism, these communities are, are small. And uh, I know how he, how he had a Parnassa, but he did. And he's in Worms for a while, and then eventually goes to Friedberg. These are all places in western Germany, what's called Hess, not far from Frankfurt. And that's where he's the rest of his life. So as far as he goes, it's a, a, a boy from Poland took a shell in Germany. And that's interesting because that was what you call uh, second best. What you really wanted, if possible, was to get a position in Poland. But you can imagine the politics at that time. And they're all wrapped up. And in general, the uh, Maral himself didn't go to Poland. You know what I mean? Uh, was in Bohemia and Moravia and places like that. Seems like there was a certain style in which you want to... Like America, I guess you say go to the West Coast or something like that. You know, not in the East Coast. So uh, that's who he was. Now, he's achieved whatever fame he achieved... Not because he had a wild and crazy career. Because he was a rabbi in these communities. The time he was there, which is in the 1550s to 1590, was a tough time to be Jewish in Germany. Uh, the Protestant Reformation was arising, this time of Martin Luther. So it's wars between the Catholics and the Protestants, as they call them, and John Calvin. Not that you need to know all that stuff. And uh, the Jews were hated by the Protestants and the Catholics. There's a famous story that I know I've mentioned that we have a letter from the Ramah who eventually had a big yeshiva in Poland of his own after Shalom Shachta, whose son-in-law he was, and the Ramah had a student who got a job in Germany and he wrote to him and he said, I wish you much luck, but I wouldn't move there. I'd rather eat a dry crust of bread in Poland with less anti-Semitism than eat a big meal in Germany with the heavy sinner and anti-Semitism. That's just is very interesting to show you how things were. Uh... I would say, for what it's worth, that Rechaim ben Mitzal, who we're talking about today, was probably the most chosh, I think, the most chosh of a rabbi in Germany in his time, in you know, the middle 1500s. Because the heavy uh, weight 
was in Poland and maybe Bohemia. Uh, Germany, the, the Jews had been kicked out of most of Germany by this time. Germany was really what they call the Holy Roman Empire, was a collection of different states and dukedoms and princedoms and cities and things like that. And most of them had expelled the Jews. And the Jews didn't start returning to Germany till later in the 1600s. So 1500s was very few Jews around in Germany. Where he was, which was the Frankfurt area and southern Germany, that's the only place the Jews were permitted to reside in very small communities. Okay, now, what's he famous for? Um, this is an intellectual matter. It's very interesting. He lived in a time of the Ramon. He was a chavrus of his. Uh, the 1500s in the history of Torah literature is very interesting, a revolutionary period for a number of reasons, two of which I'll mention. One is the revolution technological of the printing press. You can just imagine what that meant. Before then, everything had to be handwritten. It's far more, much uh, more rare. Uh, everything is a matter of being copied physically, and there are a lot of variant gearses as a result of the bad you copy. You know, you have spell check, you know. Didn't have it at that time. And the whole, our ancestors lived by constant copying. You know, I have a bunch of books in my house. If I lived at that time, I'd have to physically copy them or pay somebody to copy them, which is expensive, right? To pay somebody to copy them. Usually women did it, but, you know, whatever it is, you're paying money. That doubles and triples and quadruples the price of any book, especially a hush of a safer. And so life was strange in that way. And then somebody invented the printing press, and that just means a vast expansion of quantity, right, of quantity. And that cannot help but uh, create a re an intellectual revolution because now I, if I'm a rabbinical scholar in 16th century, if I play my game right, if I have the wherewithal, or if I attend the local synagogue or base medrash or yeshiva, I can see a library that I could never have dreamt of a generation before. I can see farm from all over the place, and they're uh, printed and edited. Uh, you know, of course, there are mistakes in the printing books, but less than in the copy uh, copies. And all I can tell you is the fact that, you know, somebody was able to publish the Venice Shas and then uh, things like that, the Micarus Gadolas, and eventually the other books in them. This transformed rabbinic culture to Jewish culture in ways that you and I can't appreciate now because we're living 500 years later. We're taking all this for granted. So to live in the 1500s, and be a, a player, not just one of the regular Amaratsim out there that's just a consumer of Judaism, but somebody's a player who's a producer of Judaism, who's uh, consuming the books of scholarship. The average ball bus out there, you know, seriously, what what they do? You know, the Siddur, you know, the Chumash, maybe you know, Rashi, Chumash Rashi, you know, that kind of thing. They couldn't access all the heavy uh, Sfarim. Uh, the heavy scholarship. And now this is made much more possible uh, as a result of the printing press. You know, if I'm a rabbi in Germany and I live in the right time, if I want to, I can get 10 guys together and say, we will now have a Hebra Shas or we'll have a Hebra Mishnah or something like that, which couldn't, which literally couldn't have been possible before that because of the expenses of, the, of the, getting the copies. How could you have, for example, a Chabura to learn Mishnayis when, you know, first of all, the Bartonur was only published in the 1500s. As I said last week, 
you know, when, when, when the stuff isn't even available. Now, as a result of the modern miracle of printing, you have Holshas with Rashi edited and Tosvos edited. This was like amazing. We don't appreciate this. That's one half of the intellectual revolution. The other half of the intellectual revolution consists not simply of the printing press itself, but of what I would call the art scroll phenomenon of the 16th century, the Steinsalz phenomenon of the 16th century. What do I mean? Books of unprecedented popularization emerged from great scholars of the 16th century, which transformed the way a lot of Torah Judaism was done. And most of us don't appreciate that. I'm referring specifically to the publication of things like the Shulchan Aruch and everything associated with that. The big halacha books, which get, which get printed. It's not just that Yosef Caro composed the Beis Yosef, but he got it printed in Italy. It's not just that Yosef Caro eventually wrote something called Shulchan Aruch, got it printed in Italy. It's not just that Ramal wrote his things, but he got printed together in the Shulchan Aruch, and, they, and these books were reprinted and reprinted all over the place, and they transformed a lot of things. Now, in the same way that you and I have lived through the art scroll revolution, so that the learning will never be the same in America, or in Israel also, uh, ever again, because you can always look it up in the art school if you want to. And some people, that's what they do, and some people have on the side, and even the ones that don't use it, but they can if they want to, and now the art scroll, and, and when I say art scroll, I mean the various iterations of that. It doesn't have to be art scroll. Like they have, for example... You know, in Israel, they have uh, Ozvahutter and that sort of thing in various forms. The uh, Kahati phenomenon, as I would call it. These have are, are, are game changers. Uh, you realize you don't realize it. And the result is that it is uh, resulted in a vast increase in the quantity of people who are able to learn, who are able to acquire information. So when the Shulchan Aruch, for example, gets published, uh, this hit the learned world like atomic bomb because now the Beis Yosef and the, Ram, and the Ramah and, you know, first of all the tour of the Beis Yosef and the Darkly Moshe and then the second iteration which is of course the uh, Shulchan Aruch, the Mechav and the Ramah uh, and I'm not even talking about the, the Mepharshim that get written later on on it, you know the, the, the Shach and the Mogan of and the Sma and all that the Taz. these resulted in the ability to make information uh, available to a much wider range of people. And here I'm talking about not quantitative alone, but qualitative. Because it meant that somebody's a rabbi somewhere. Uh, not every rabbi's a only gone. You know, rabbi of a town. So somebody's a rabbi somewhere. Now you have good cheater books. You understand? You can open up something called the Shulchan Aruch or the Beit Yosef or the Dr. Moshe and all that. And you're afforded information that Chances are, unless you're some serious major scholar, you wouldn't have been able to acquire until then. And every rabbi in the world, you know, wants to know, be up on the latest. And every rabbi in the world, I'm talking about a, you know, a rabbi with a, a community, a show, something like that, a dime, wants to know all the coolers out there. I repeat, all the coolers out there. Because, uh, you know, if it's possible, when you have a, a question to Paskin, it's, if, if you can... Right? I mean, if it's possible, it's better to be Mako. You prefer. Uh, not always. If it's not possible, you're not. That's what separates the, <laughs> the Orthodox from the conservative. But nevertheless, you know, the, the, the predilection should be, if it's possible, you try to, to help somebody out. 
I say, if not, not. Now, uh, these books, therefore, had a huge impact. Well, you know and I know, I think you do, maybe you're not my age. A lot of people turned off by the art scroll, correct? A lot of people turned off by the art scroll. Uh, when, I, I mean, I was one of the translators. When it came out, you know, all the Rebbies in high school and this and that and the other, she was all turned off by the art scroll. Because, and they were not wrong in their way, correct? No, there are two, my point is there are two sides to it. There really are. And it's not simple. On the one hand, um, you're making, the, let's take the art scroll of Gemara, which is the fa biggest selling book. On the one hand, you're making, uh, you know, the whole shots available to huge amounts of people, and you're turning Gemara learning to a mass phenomenon, the like of which we've never seen. And so today, in the year 2020, we've now lived in the last 20, 25 years, 30 years, whatever, in a time of unprecedented expansion of the population of Gemara learners. Right? The Dafyomi phenomenon, everything associated in the last 30 years, 40 years, whatever, has uh, exploded. I don't think most of us appreciate this. It's exploded. And it's getting bigger all the time, including non from people and women and... I don't know, all, all groups. Eventually, Goyim, who knows? And that's why we have uh, the Dafyomis, you have tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people in the aggregate. It's, you know, the, the, the study of the Babylonian Talmud is just, just shot out. And recently now, there come out good additions to art school on the Yushalmi, and in Hebrew, there's a good Yushalmi. And there's no question in my mind. And as time is going on, the Yushalmi is going to be studied in a wide fashion, that Mamish never existed before. Used to be Yerushalmi studied by a couple of weirdos. It was rare. And uh, now, thanks to modern science, it's there. Now, all this reflects is the fact that, at least to my mind, uh, Jews now live in the West, uh, particularly in America. And whenever Jews live in a, uh, in a culture, they pick up the good and the bad. And one of the good things in America is we're the headquarters of, of mass production. And the art school nothing is but a reflection of the fact that Orthodox Jews in America, some of them, uh, figured out how to uh, replicate the American mass production in terms of good translations, uh, from translations of the classic rabbinic literature. Bible, Yushalmi, and who knows what else. Now art school's coming out with toast of us, as you know, which I'm sure if they finish that whole business, which will take a while, if they imagine if, they, if there's the art school toast us on every toast and shots. That's going, I'm sure it's going to revolutionize things. Plus, of course, we know the Masift is out in Israel. There are Israeli versions of this. And we're just living in an age such as never existed before, which is fine. I always say, by the time this is over, everything's going to be internet. You know, you're going to... I know it sounds funny, but, uh, you know, you'll be able to do, what do you call it, YouTube. You want to see, you know, Steinmoch's and Batalis according to the Ksos? You do this YouTube. They'll show you this, uh, you know... Uh, a video. You want to see how it comes out according to the Nasivas? It come out, you know, they'll show you another video. And so things that people used to, you know, stretch their mind and try to figure out are not going to be at the fingertips. So something somewhat analogous, not exactly as much of course, but some something analogous took place in the 16th century. Because when um, the tour in Beis Yosef came, when the Beis Yosef came out, uh, you know, the average guy out there, average student, didn't have the whole shots at fingertips. But now with the base, you have a grand shooter book. And if you, if you go down the line, according to the system 
of you know the tour, you know what I mean, Orachayim and Ebenezer and Chosha Mishpah and Yerodea. If you follow along, you know, the Basilis will give you every Gemara, every Rashi, and every basic region, shall we say. So even if you tell me you don't necessarily possibly like the Beit Yosef, many did, many didn't, but you have, you know, the basic information out there, which a generation or two before, only somebody with a rich rabbinic library would even have access to these texts. Um, and same thing with the Ramon, you know, in his way. So all I'm trying to tell you is that there existed in the 16th century and even in the 17th century the same phenomenon that we exist today, which is Rove of the Velt loves the art school, and the Steinsaltz and everything associated with that phenomenon, they love the Masifta, and so forth. And a mute, um, usually an elitist mute, I don't mean that in a bad way, I mean people who are big learners, are turned off by it. Now, why would you be turned off by it? And the answer, of course, is, you go back to Chaim Bembetzal, our hero today, because uh, he was... Um, Harusa of the Ramah. He learned same Yeshiva together. He was Polish, but his career took him the last uh, from the age of 29 to 60. The last 40 years of his life, he was in uh, the Rhineland in Western Germany. And uh, and he's living there, and his former Chabrus is publishing all these books. And he doesn't like what he sees. And he sees the whole Welt is going along with it, he loves it. And to him, it's a, it's a negative. Now, why would that be? Well, it's very interesting. Uh, there is... I first heard of Chaim Bebetz. Let me, let, me, let me rephrase it this way. I know this person from long ago because uh, I read many, many years ago, decades ago, um, these two sets of books which are history books, sort of, sort of, which were histories of rabbinic literature. Uh, one was called Toldas Aposkim by Rav Sa'ir, who was a big Moscow. See, he was a guy who was a weirdo, you know, part Orthodox rabbi, part non-Orthodox rabbi, you know, uh, back 100 years ago. Um, no major uh, uh, figure. And he was a big Moscow in Russia. And he had Smicha and Musical Hanan. And he actually went, got a PhD in Germany somewhere. Hildesheimer studied there for a while. It was an excellent Hebrew writer, Ivrit writer, it's a Moscow from the Acharam Tufa, and never really found his niche in life, and uh, wanted to be a professor at Hebrew University when the Hebrew University started, and they, they didn't consider himself, they didn't consider him a, a, enough of a real scholar. So he ended up teaching in New York, came to America, and he taught by Stephen Wise, who had his own seminary, you know, like a reform place. And he published, he was a very nice writer. You know, those Hanam guys were masters of Hebrew style. Pleasure to read them from the, from the literary point of view. And he published two sets of books. They used to be around when I was young. If you went to a farm store in New York, they're all over the place. Now they're probably totally gone. One was called Toldas Halach, and the other one was called Toldas Haposkim. Toldas Halach is like three, four volumes, and Toldas Haposkim is like three volumes. And Toldas Halach is real muscular stuff. Um, yeah, this is the way he taught his history of, of uh, Talmudic literature, I suppose. And it's very much into the uh, 19th century Wissenschaft and Ascola guys and so forth, if you're into that. And then, that's, that's A. And B, 
Uh, since he was young, he was interested in the history of the Shulchan Aruch. I repeat, the history of the Shulchan Aruch. And he actually wrote a controversial essay in the 18, late 1800s. I think it was called Toldus HaShulchan Aruch, the history of the Shulchan Aruch, which for some reason freaked out the from. I'm not exactly sure why. At that time, it bothered them have the notion that there's a history of halacha. I never quite understood that, but okay. Uh, and he expanded this tremendously later on, teaching in New York, into three volumes called Tolda Poskim. Tolda Poskim is very good. It's very interesting. And um, he's a, you know, quirky guy, and he has his own opinion on everything, which is fine. And he did all the way through. He's got an Exos and an Asivas. And Doran Batuman, he's got an everybody. What's on the Poskim? And, you know, he's mainly interested in the Rambam, but, uh, you know, he's in, uh, uh, and, and the Shulchan Aruch, but that's what he did. Now, um, in this, one of the things that interested him was the rise of the Shulchan Aruch, which I think to the Maskilim, you know, it symbolized Halacha. And the fact that the Shulchan Aruch, when it was written, aroused a great opposition. And everybody knows a little bit about Jewish history knows this. Meaning that just as I told you before, when the art scroll came out, it aroused a certain opposition. So when the Shulchan Aruch came out, you know, from a mute, it aroused an opposition. From the rove, everybody was macabre and liked the Shulchan Aruch. Doesn't mean you necessarily paskin straight that way, but he thought it's a great book. And still do. Uh, Shulchan Aruch Ramah. Now, um, in the course of this, he, and he's a good historian, you know, in, in terms of collecting a lot of sources. And of course, this the author published something that had been very obscure, and that is the following. And he put, and published in nice print, and that is the following. Our hero, Rabbi Chaim ben Mitzal Friedberg, um, who's a contemporary of Ramah, they knew each other, friends. Uh, when the Ramah wrote a sefer on uh, Kashrut on Nisar or what you and I today would call Yeridea. So this is before he wrote the Shulchan Aruch and, wrote, and that stuff, the Ramah. So first he wrote a sefer called Torah Shatas. I think anybody who's ever learned from Smicha is familiar with the Torah Shatas because you see a quote all the time. And this is on, you know, Kashrus, let's say, you know, I mean, uh, what do you call it? Basar Machalov, Tarubis, Malicha, and so forth. That's the Torah Shatas. And um, it's, like you see, the Ramah's own sefer on these subjects. So when he posed this, this represented the Ramah's own conclusions. The Ramah was a Rosh Hashiva and a Rav, of course. And when he taught this stuff, you know, he went through it, he's the Ramah, and he published the way he, he passed the way he, he did. You know, all, all these different questions. Milk, spoon, inflation, pot, you know, all that. Now, um, when that happened, so, our hero, Chaim B'Zal, was, um, what should I say, uh, turned off by a lot of the Pesachs the Piskeh of the Ramah, which is fine, right? You have two big gedolim, nothing wrong with that. Not everybody has to agree with each other. And it's a, it's a, um, you know, a safer, as Vahe Vesufa, as they say, you know, you hold this way, I hold that way. So he wrote this uh, safer, I guess, uh, arguing on the Torah Sechatas. Now, um, when he published the book, he appended an introduction, like a 10-page introduction. And the 10-page introduction is called Vikuach Mayim Chaim. Actually, the name of the Sefer against the Ramah that he wrote is called Vikuach Mayim Chaim. And it, 
you know, the title tells you everything. The Torah is a Mayim Chaim. There's nothing wrong with having a Bikuach on it. Like I say before, an intellectual disagreement is just fine. That's what Torah is all about. The whole Shas is full of intellectual disagreements, I may remind you. And that's fine. Uh, and it's interesting here because the two people knew each other and uh, Rav Chaim Ben-Sal was Machshev de Ramah and he knew he's a great person, all the rest of it. But he disagreed on a lot of this Kashrus and things like that stuff. No problem. But in the introduction, he gives like a uh, intellectual essay in which he criticizes the whole phenomenon of what I would call Shulchan Aruch literature, of these cheater books that are coming out now. And he did so from the standpoint of a high elitism. And this was is, is a classic statement and very interesting, and everybody should read it, because here he makes the case against publishing anything like a Shulchan Aruch or like a, Rome or like a Halacha book from a whole bunch of different standpoints. And that part is fascinating. The problem is, this book was like published after the Mechaber's death, and it's an attack on the Ramah personally, although he constantly says, I hold from him, he's Rav Guvri and all the rest of him, but I consider he made a terrible mistake in publishing the and later the Shulchan Aruch. You know, I, I, the whole approach of publishing these uh, halacha books, the whole approach of publishing a Sefer Halacha per se, especially for us nowadays, modern people, is flawed and results in wrong psaq and um, uh, laziness and people learning, because why do the trouble of looking up the sources yourself when you just get the, you know, get get it from a cheetah book, as we say today. Uh, it's, if you want the modern equivalent of this, I'm just making this up, it'd be somebody saying like this, you can't Pascha from the internet, you know? <laughs> can't just Google something and say, okay, now I see there are four sheets and, you know, in the Hebrew Wikipedia or something like that, and now I can pass that shout. On many levels. So, if you take away the word internet and you put the word Ramah, you know, you got this it's about 10 pages. And it's very, very fascinating. But since, now he wrote at the time when him and Ramah are still alive. Although he lived past Ramah. Now, what's fascinating is that at the time he wrote it, he could say whatever he wants. He's a contemporary. And when he published it safer, I think it was in Krakow. Uh, in the, like after his death, a few years after his death, in the early 1600s, I think, uh, then uh, uh, literally a few years after his death. So, uh, what shall I say? Uh, you could write whatever you want. There were still plenty of people around who were contemporaries of his. Actually, I see it's published in, in 1593, so literally five years after he died. The Ramah had just come out. The Shulchan Aruch had, had very recently come out. There were still a lot of people from the generation who were, you know, pre-art scroll and therefore opposed to art scroll, if I can use that terminology. And you could say it. By the time it was reprinted, they removed the Hakdama, which is an attack on the Ramon. By that time, by the time it was reprinted, which is like a hundred and some years later, the Ramon was already like a canonical figure. You understand? The Ramon had attained a figure of authority and was like untouchable. So even though they published afterwards this safer from Chaim ben and they republished it a few times, they always omitted the intro. And so the attack on Art Scroll was uh, no longer considered politically correct. This is the Jewish censorship. You know, they removed it. In fact, I didn't look at it. Maybe in Mark Shapiro's book, they have an example, as an example of censorship. Uh, it was very interesting. Now, how would anybody get this today? Maybe on the Hebrew books, if it's around... But I don't think I don't think they have the first edition. 
So the answer is, this Maskele guy, Rabbi Seir, when he published his Toldus Apostle, which he published in the 1940s, uh, as a sort of public service, because he's interested in the subject of the acceptance and the non-acceptance of the Shulchan Aruch as a historian. See, he, he put the whole thing in there. It's like 10 pages, in nice, normal block print. It's a to read. So if you have the Toldus Apostle, which I'm sure you can't get now, Maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, I mean, it might be around in old farm places and all the rest of it, uh, but it's very politically incorrect. When I was much younger, uh, you know, Beagle Eyes and all these spores, they had uh, combinations of from stuff and muscular stuff all over the place. It was no big deal. Now it's a new world. So uh, if you want to see the, uh, this uh, essay, which is a fascinating essay, uh, I think the only way you can do it is you get the, the Rob's here, I believe. Now, um, that's one place I saw this. I remember reading it long ago, I made an impression. So I reread it before I did this uh, talk the other day. And um, there's another place that I know it from as well. Now, I, I want to say this. There is a biography of our hero that I never read. And uh, the Mosetter of Cook has a biography series, correct? If you know what I'm talking about. Over the years, over the last 60, 70, 80 years, actually, uh, the Mosetter of Cook, from time to time, has published biographies of uneven quality, some better, some worse. On, you know, famous uh, Rabbanim, you know what I mean? The, the Ramah, the Rosh, the Ramban, you know, Rav Cook, uh, Mars Chayas, you know, things like that. Uh, over the years, different authors. And there's somebody, uh, Professor uh, Simmer, I think, Zimmer, I think, uh, who did one eh, 30 years ago on Chaim ben Mitzal. And I'll tell you the honest truth, I've seen it from time to time in farm stores over the last 30, 40 years. And I never bothered to get it because I wasn't into Chaim ben Mitzal at that time. Um, uh, Yitzhak Zimmer. And uh, I don't know, well, uh, he was a, he's a, he's a historian of... Uh, Anyway, he wrote the art school biography of the Chaim ben Mitzal. So I would imagine that this uh, essay, whichever should, is in that book of his. Uh, I actually called the, the farm store last week here in Baltimore. But they don't have it. It was published like in the 80s. Uh, that's, so that's one place. And there he has a very, as I said before, just a very interesting uh, uh, you know, critique of the whole phenomenon of, of, of uh, farm, of uh, what do you call halacha books, and it's very, very interesting. I'm going to bring out one point. There are many points in there. I just want to bring out one point. And what he says is, old school, Chaim uh, ben Mitzal. You know, when you have a halacha sefer, it, it, it ties the hands of the person who has the paskin. Uh, really, if you have a Shiloh, a person who's a rabbi has the obligation to go through all the makoras from top to bottom, like you're a digger's Moshe yourself, and come up with a neat sock for this family, this halacha, this time, and this place. But the perfect is the enemy of the good, so it's not going to happen. So a person who's a really huge scholar can say, well, if you're not like that, if you're like a B rabbi, then get out of the business. But on the other hand, there aren't too many Chaim ben running around. You understand? Not, not too many people have whole shots, all the sources at their fingertips. Now, sometimes there are. I'm simply saying they have this existential tension, which is always out there, between the ideal, which is to poskin everything on your own, without being bound by anyone else's opinion, and do an honest job, you know, between you and Hashem, 
and uh, anything short of that is is a, a lack of quality, and therefore it's not really the Torah process. Versus the other way of saying, well, the Shulchan Aruch says this, or like today we said this, Ramosha Feinstein passing this way, or so and so passing this way, or you know this rebel, this is the rebel Yashiv said to do this way, and then it's not really like you're 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 doing your work, as he puts it in his essay. You see, it's deceptive. He says like a poor guy who has no food and goes around begging as he used to to this guy's house and that guy's house and that guy's house, and so he meets a bunch of nice families, and he, this is what he writes in his muscle. And as a result, let's say I went to five houses, and this family gave me a whole bunch of milchiks, and this family gave me a whole bunch of fleshiks, and this family gave me a whole bunch of this, a wine, and this family gave me a whole bunch of uh, fancy breads. And then I come home, I've got like a huge spread over here, right? Because all the neighbors were nice enough to give me a ton of food. And so if you walked in my house after my wife set up this table for Shabbos, with all this fancy food all over the place, I would look like a millionaire as deceptive. I'm actually a poor man. I got this by, by, by uh, scrounging on other people. So that's his muscle. You know, if a person says, I looked this up in the Ramon, I looked this up in the Taz, I looked this up in the Tashach, and all the rest of it, sounds like you're a big scholar. No, you're not. They, you, you cheated. They, they gave you their, the results of their research. You didn't do your research. Tashach did the research. You understand? Or today you say like this, you didn't do the research. Digris Moshe did the research, or somebody like that. And you're supposed to want to do the research. It's not simply like a college professor saying you're being weak on your intellectuality. As a rabbi, your job, min hashamayim, you know, what God wants you to do is to do the research. The job of the Rav consists of doing the research. And if you can't do it, then get out of the business. That's uh, one of many interesting, uh, you know, aspects of this long essay. It's there. It's very, very interesting. Uh, and he says he was once out of town, some student passing something straight from the from the Ramal book, and he got it all wrong because he didn't understand this lady was different. Uh, he's also into the Minhagim. It's very interesting to me because, you know, we all know the Ramal, he says like this, Hochi Nahaginon, Hochi Naktinon, this Dominic over here. And he said, no, it's not. You, I knew you. You and I learned together. We've known each other all our lives. You, you made this up. In other words, you yourself started poskening this way when you became a Dayan at the age of 19 or 20 in, in, in Krakow. You're a big guy. He always says over and over again, he says, I hold from Yosef Karo. I hold from the Ramah. They're, they're big scholars. They're big people. Not to take away from them. You know, I'm not going to lie about that. But, but, doesn't mean that because you decided in this business of Isra Beheter or Hilchus Nida, uh, which he's interested in also, uh, you know, you decided to poskin this way, uh, which you have the right to do as a rabbi in your own, and you know the research, you're the Ramah, you've done the research, you shouldn't then write, this the minig. this is what you came up with. You invented this minig, you know, and it's not what other people did. You yourself, as a result of your research, came up with this and said, this is how we poskin. No, that's how you poskin, it's not how we poskin. And these are intellectual critiques of a very interesting nature. Uh, if, if somebody's interested in this, another place I read about this years ago is in um, a, uh, what should I say, the famous two-volume work by uh, Professor uh, Menachem Elon on Hamishpat Hevri, which uh, also is one of these great cheater books. Menachem Elon was on the Israeli Supreme Court, but he was a from guy, and he's a big Talmud Chacham, he learned the mirror, 
in Yerushalayim, or Hebron maybe, I don't know. And, um, yeah, and he was a big time Chacham, but he went on a law career in Israel. I mean, longer, long ago. Now it's common for from people to have law careers in Israel, but at that time it wasn't. And he rose to the Supreme Court. And uh, he was also a law professor at Hebrew U. At the, you know, what passes in Israel for the Harvard Law School is best as they can get. And one of the courses he gave, he's a, you know, it's a big uh, law guy, and one of the courses he gave was in the history of Jewish law. And eventually he published this called Mishpat Ivri. And uh, it's, it's a fantastic book. It's two or three volumes. And uh, it's been, uh, and the, the footnotes are amazing. Because the guy gave the course year after year, like I do, you know. So over a while, you, you, you pile up your, your, uh, your uh, uh, what's it called, footnotes and sources. And he refined it and refined until he got it right in his opinion. I think this was published in the eighties, if I remember correctly, and it's a very, it's a it's brilliant work, and it's been translated into English, by the way, uh, uh, called Jewish Law, uh, History, Sources, and Principles, uh, in four volumes, by the JPS, the Jewish Publication Society. A guy in my show was one of the main translators, Melvin Sykes, a big lawyer, and uh, uh, and, and a few other people who were friends of Menachem Elon. I I met him. I I heard him speak a few times in Baltimore. Very, very egghead guy. But he was a brilliant guy. And in there, he's interested in the development of Jewish law. The whole theme of Mishpat Evri, which is the title, Mishpat Evri is a term in Israel, which is a school of thought in law, in which it was hoped by some, never happened, and it can't happen, that Jewish law, I mean halacha, would influence the development of Israeli law. Now this is, uh, something, like I say, for legal scholars, not for you and I. I mean, law professors and people. I'm serious. You know, people are into the, writing the law journals of Israel. And the Israeli law is not going to fall to Allah, you know. But this was the idealism of people of early generation. But whatever the case is, it produced this wonderful text. And in there, he's also interested, the whole book is basically about the question of codification of Jewish law, because that's what the guy's into. He was a a big lawyer and a Supreme Court judge and a law professor. And therefore, he was one of the people who's writing the law codes of Israel, state of Israel. And an existential problem in Jewish intellectual thought has always been the question of the codification of Jewish law. Can Jewish law be codified? And ought it to be codified? This is a debate that's been going on forever and will never stop. Uh, that's why it's been existential. Because there's always a plus. Somebody coming out with a law book, with a halacha book, it's got a big utility. On the other hand... You know, it stifles someone else from doing their own individual psak, as I said before, by going through all the makaras themselves and coming up honestly, you know, L'shem Shamayim, with Yer Shamayim, uh, with what you consider the correct psak in, in a very specific uh, situation. And uh, everybody's in a rabbi business comes across it sometimes. But on the other hand, it's, as I said before, unless you're going to be a major, huge Talmud Chacham and memorize everything, the, the utility of halachas form are, are undeniable. And so the, whether you like it or not, 99% of the Rabbanim are always going to say like this, what's the newest safe route on this subject? What's the newest safe route on that subject? Because they might bring Makaris you never heard of. Or, as we say today, the guy might have some new kula. I mean, a real kula, not a phony kula. You know, that they didn't know it's good to have that in the pocket because you might need it sometime. You know, there's nothing wrong with that except from the level of, um, of intellectual critique that, you know, you're not doing the research of your own. 
And in the course of this fat book, which is 12, 1,500 pages, something like that, uh, he has a whole section on our hero, and naturally so. And he uh, analyzes it in great detail, this essay that I told you about, uh, which I don't want to take up too much time going on. I'm just calling this to your attention. It's like in the 1100s of the book. And uh, if anybody's interested in this subject, which is an arcane and intellectual su subject, I find it interesting. The, the, the question of what they call bayata codificatia, the, the problem of codification per se. Because uh, let's face it, for example, the, the, there's a this is a very wide subject, but you can never codify Jewish law because every generation or two later, a whole bunch of new things have come up. And uh, to make it easy for you to understand, think, for example, of the Mishnah Brewer. So, well, the Mishnah Brewer is the last word in subject. No, now they got the Piskei uh, Chubas and all this, which brings this stuff up to date. Meaning the Mishnah Brewer, as great as it was, was written 100 years ago. But if somebody's a rabbi, he's posking to eight. What about the fact that you got the Chazanish said this and that and the other? What about the fact you have Degris Moshe said this and that and the other? What about the fact you have Achiezer, Chaim Moser, Grzynski? And, you know, I mean, big people. And besides, you know, the many other post came from our general, you know, Chalkas Yaakov, and I don't know, I don't know. You know what I mean? All the uh, the regular the post came in, the Pesach Frank, and, uh, you know, nowadays Rebel Yoshev, and, uh, you know, like that. Um, so, there's a, a necessity to always, like, update the stuff. And as soon as you update the stuff, the old stuff is no longer as authoritative as it once was. Or, it's, by that I mean, you don't simply say, I'm going to look what the mission board says, and that's the end of the story. There are things that are past the mission board, you can't deny it. So, a rabbi can decide whatever he feels like. But, if he has a question, and the mission board says one way, and the Igrit's Moshe says another, so what do you do? You understand? Uh, these are the questions of the codification of law and time and chronology elements and all the rest of it. And the essay of Rabbi Chaim ben Mitzal of Friedberg uh, is a classic in that. And really, anybody's interested in what I'm talking about today should 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 take the trouble to try to read it. Uh, I don't think it's online, best I can tell. So I'm not exactly sure how you get it. I suspect, I mean, I know it's in the uh, Ravitzer yearbook. And it's not quoted verbatim, but it's analyzed closely in the uh, Menachem Elam book. And I suspect it's probably in that, in that uh, excuse me, the uh, Moser of Cook biography, most likely. Uh, other, other don't have it. And uh, that's the only place I know where you can get a hold of it. And uh, as I said before, it raises all these very interesting questions. It's interesting that this is the week of Shavuos, because Shavuos is about Torsha and Torsha, because Torsha Balpeb. The Torah Shabbat is exactly what I've been discussing today. Why is it that the Torah Shabbat was, was not meant to be written down? What's the reason? Is there a, a voodoo, a, a, a taboo on writing? It's not even true. You're allowed to write Torah Shabbat, so you can't publish it. You know, it's not true that people thousands of years ago were not allowed to keep notes. What, I have to listen to a long shear from Eliyahu and Navi or David Amalekh and memorize it all? I'm not allowed to write anything down. You can write down whatever you want. The Rambam refers to these as Megillus Starim. You know, you, you, you can write things like that. But on the other hand, um, you know, don't, don't give it to others to become a safer. And the reason for that is precisely what we're talking about up here. They never wanted a text to freeze the Tarsh of Apeb. Along the lines of what Chaim ben Mitzal was talking about. The problem, of course, is that all of Jewish history for the last 2,000 years or so 
has been exception to that rule. Ever since reviewed on Nasi and all that, when they put the Mishnah down, that started a process in which we, in which this tension is always going to be there. You publish a safer, but is that, is that the last word? You know, and does that does that safer the Mishnah or does the Sefer or anything else contain the totality of the Torah pad? And is this crimping the ability of a real posik to uh, pass on his own, ignoring the others? And you can't deny that once books are out there, they kind of tie the hands to some degree. Uh, every once in a while, you'll find some uh, famous rabbi, very rarely, you know, like a Raga Chabrol, says, I don't care what anybody else says, this is what I think it is. But it's highly unusual, you know what I mean? People don't usually go like that. Uh, now you got the left-wingers, that complicates the story. So all I'm saying is that these issues are uh, really intrinsic to Shavuos and the whole concept, in my mind, of, of the Torah Shavuot Pep. Because the Torah Shavuot Pep had been profoundly problematized ever since the, the, you know, the publication of texts. But we live in a world today in which get over it, you know, get over it. And not only that, but the internet has magnified this problem because, you know, it's it's just easy to put things up on the internet. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's the quality control on the, on, on the Wikipedia? What's the quality on the internet? But on the other hand, it's a, it's a big utility. People say, oh, I like this article, I like this thing over here. It gives me a lot of information. But are you going to use that to Paskin from? But I bet you some will. And uh, English books that come out now with halakhas in them, and uh, you know the art scroll books. It's it's an interesting world we're living in over here, and the purists are throw up their hands in horror, and it's always been that way. And one of the main artic- you know articulate spokesmen for the purist position is uh, our hero Rucham ben in his uh, introduction to Vikuch Ma'im uh, Chaim, and so. Uh, uh, not every, I'm, I'm sure very few people are aware of what I've been talking about today, which is why I'm sharing it with you. And if you're a person up's farm, uh, I think you'll find this a, 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 give you a great deal of uh, thought in the higher sense on issues of Toshabesab, Toshabesab, particularly this year in Shavuos when we're all going to be stuck in some fashion, all the thanks to the corona. And uh, uh, what shall I say? The best result would be that people will dedicate themselves. Although I don't think anybody can totally do it the way he wanted, but dedicate himself to more more pure research, uh, which Rabbi Chaim would have advocated for, uh, and so he ends up being a very interesting figure, but unfortunately marginal because his uh, ideas didn't take off that well. I would conclude by saying that if you get a hold of this Sefer Achaim, which is his Musar book. Uh, it's very unusual and very, I, I can only say, I'm going through it now, every page is most unusual ideas. You understand? Uh, if somebody's a rabbi, you could have 10,000 speeches from this safer, And I mean it. Because every paragraph is a chiddishtika idea. Um, you know, some better, some worse. It's the 16th century style. And because it's worse, and because I just happened to read this today, I'll conclude with a tiny piece of... Um, of uh, something I read today, and you can like it or not like it, uh, but it's very much his style. And he's got a chapter here, what he calls uh, the the safer is divided into into uh, you know different parts, and uh, you know you got safer zechuyos and some of it's called safer chaim tovim. I read the back part first about Golis and geula, um, which is also very cynical in his part. He has a lot of bad things to say about Jewish people. Uh, but he uh, mentioned over here 
this chapter I'm reading today, but how Tamilicham are not properly supported. Tamilicham not properly supported. You know, he says if a safer Torah fell in the street, everybody would freak out. If a Talmachachim stars, nobody cares. You know, that kind of approach. And uh, he's just quoting over here, because um, He's saying, Rabbi Sainu Amr and Ksubas call no saying, Doran or Talmachachim, Kila Mevi Bikurim. It's Shibus. If somebody gives a present of Talmachachim, like bringing Bikurim. What does that mean? It's a short piece. You can't bring Bikurim, you know, to stay a Lechem, whatever. The Bikurim has to come from Chitin, meaning the good wheat, not the bad wheat. And the Jews were in Zoha, uh, you know, for, for Shavuos until they got the Torah. Uh, in other words, they left Egypt, but they didn't get the Torah till Shavuos. But Pesach, Shalokibba, Dain Satoro, Loi Karbonarak, Minchas, Omer, Som, Shumacha, Behema. So they, you have two, as we know, he brackets the, the, the sphere up. So you start with the uh, uh, Karbon Omer, which is Michael Behema, Sorim, Barley. Cheap bread, and you get to Shavuos, which is chitim. For Adam Zemachabes the Talmud Chacham, I feel Amaris. So what it means is, if a person, even if he's Amaris, is Machabed the Talmud Chacham, Roy Losu Karm Shezachal Yisrael Shikibus the Torah, then Kila Mevi Bikurim is Hizocha to the chitim, which means by being Machzik Torah, you uh, you know gain from the learning. You yourself are a, a zocha to the schar of the learning of the Talmud Chacham. Um, no, no, you know, it's a, if you if you're a good rabbi, you can you can, you can play with that. That's a tiny piece of literally. I'm not exaggeration when I say there's a thousand of these in this book. Every page is very unusual, very different. So with that, I'm running out of time. So I wish you a good shavuos. I hope to get in one more podcast here before the week is over. And goodbye.